years old, I was convinced that an accountant lived beneath my bed. I could not see him, but could hear him the moment the lights went out. Matilda, he whispered, two copies of the income statement for the third fiscal quarter. Who is Matilda, I thought, trembling. And what is a fiscal quarter? My parents were of no help. They peeked beneath my bed, announced no accountant, and flicked off the light, leaving me alone with the sounds of his typing, faxing, invoicing. I was on my own. I slept with a knife beneath my pillow. I taught myself the rudiments of Taekwondo. I tossed leftover baked beans onto the carpet to dissuade the accountant from hungering for my blood, flesh, and bones. Matilda, he said. My fingers gripped the hilt of the blade. In time, my parents discovered the baked beans. They discovered the Taekwondo manuals and the knife. They were not pleased. Stop being ridiculous, they said. There is no accountant beneath your bed. And even if there were, accountants are not dangerous. They take care of our money. They are our friends. But they did not hear his whispers. They did not hear his rasps. They did not hear him call out, Matilda, again and again in the night, demanding bank statements, expenditure reports, subsidiary ledgers, balance sheets, accounts receivable, his voice dripping with wantonness and lust. The accountant was no friend of mine. You can hide if you want But you can run with the knife in your back It's alright if you don't If you can make a baby turn your head and never look back I'll pay the price if you need it I'll tell them all they need to find You can relax, ain't no time to meditate Cause I feel thing wasn't working out, so Darlene and I decided to outsource. Best decision we've ever made. Haven't looked back since. Pre-outsourcing, little Johnny would ask us uncomfortable questions every breakfast. Why does grandpa talk so funny? What does sodomy mean? How come the kids at school say that Jews don't go to heaven? 
Darlene and I would stare at each other, horrified. How do you explain these things to a six-year-old? Well, I still don't know, but the folks at the call center in the Philippines do. So now little Johnny just dials the 1-800 number magneted to the fridge, and everyone wins. Darlene and I were never too good with administering moral guidance, the discernment of right or wrong, basic sex ed, which is probably why our teenage Jenny got knocked up by that sportscaster. Too late to turn the clock back now, but the call center has been great with answering her questions and providing emotional support in her time of crisis. Early on, she'd burst into tears every dinner, clutching her silverware with a death grip and looking to us hungrily for comfort and consolation, but we'd just ignore her, carve our steaks, sip our drinks, pass the butter and the salt. Now we hand her the telephone, and the Filipinos take care of everything. This is how we show her. We love her. Some people say American children should be parented by Americans. Some people say folks like us are contributing to the slide of our once-proud country into economic and cultural oblivion. I say, nonsense. Darlene and I are not equipped for these children. Their mercurial moods, their insatiable requests, their predispositions for disaster and tragedy. Left in our hands, they are time bombs, landmines. If it weren't for that 1-800 number, that pleasantly modulated voice, para espanol, primo uno, I shudder to think of the inevitable savagery, destruction, despair. Outsourcing doesn't just make us better parents. It makes me a better husband, Darlene a better wife. When I can't show Darlene the attention and affection she deserves, I outsource. When I can't satisfy her sexually, she makes sweet love over the phone with a sensually voiced representative based out of Manila. Was I once too proud to delegate these marital responsibilities? Yes. Am I still too proud? No. In these trying times, I am no longer too proud to ask for help. I am no longer too proud to beg. I am no longer too proud to hear that pleasantly modulated voice say, Would you like to speak to a representative? And answer, Yes, cleanly and clearly, so there can be no mistake as to what it is that I want. Boyfriends, I see a scar. 
processed her application for food stamps, so I got a job with a human lotto. I produced the necessary photo identification, the proof of employment eligibility, provided my personal information, filled out the W-4 form, and they tattooed the 12 numbers on my skin, shellacked me toast to neck with opaque metallic foil, and dropped me off in front of the Easy Mart to hustle for customers with the other scratch-off girls. At the Easy Mart, there were 15 of us, shiny, gray, and metallic. Some were young, some were old, some thin, some heavy, some black, white, brown, yellow. But beneath our necks, all of us were gray. One of the girls had been doing this for years. She had been scratched off hundreds of times. She said usually it was done in motel rooms, the scratching, by lonely men, bald, paunchy, sweating, pale. But other times it was cocktail lounges, executive suites, employees-only restrooms, the Admiral's Club of an airport terminal. You really never knew. I asked her did it hurt, and she said, some more than others. She said last night it was a suburban living room, leather furniture, decorative fireplace, portraits of children on the walls, a divorced father of four watching television's John Stamos announce the winning numbers as he, the father of four, frantically clawed her naked. The girl took those of us new to the profession under her wing. She taught us how to solicit, how to hustle, what salves and creams to use when the metallic foil and men's fingernails irritated our skin. Sometimes we got worse than scratches, hideous men in motels leaving us with deep punctures, incisions, lacerations, and the girl sutured us herself with a cigarette lighter sterilized sewing needle and fishing line in the out-of-order ladies' room of the Easy Mart. When we went to get reshellacked, our employers, if they noticed the sutures at all, said nothing. We were paid by the hour, plus commission. All state and federal withholding was automatically deducted from our paychecks. We learned, over time, how to strut, preen, primp, pose, salaciously loiter. We learned how to lean against the exterior of the Easy Mart so our metallic foil caught the dying sunlight just so. We learned which men to go after, the ones who might slip us an extra twenty, who would scratch us off gently, who would reveal only the numbers and nothing else, and which men to avoid, learned to recognize hidden violence and perversion on first sight, but sometimes we were wrong, and it was the depraved looking ones who treated us tenderly, the generous looking ones who abused us, humiliated us, defiled us. You could never be entirely certain. There was always an element of chance. Sometimes my baby's daddy stopped by for gas, beer, beef jerky, condoms, 
and the other scratch-off girls called out to him, Ten million dollar jackpot, one hundred prizes remain, a percentage of all proceeds support local public education. The girl who processed our food stamp applications waited in his car, glaring. Love songs spilled from open car windows. Shining star, I got you babe, I feel fine. We learned not to take our work home with us. We learned to make the most of our days off. We learned how to go outside of ourselves during the scratching so that it was not us who was being clawed, exposed, abraded, but a foreign body, inanimate, insentient, unencumbered by feelings, emotions, dreams, passions, desires, and in this way, we were able to make it through the day, collect our paychecks, go to sleep, wake up, do it again. My baby learned to walk, to talk, and the other scratch-off girls took turns looking after her when they were off, and I was at the Easy Mart, in a motel room, a restroom, a frat house, a janitor's closet, a pleasure dungeon. My baby called each of the girls auntie, and they called her sweetness, sunshine, pumpkin, chikatika, mi amor. We learned about statistical probability, economies of scale, expected payoff. We learned every subtlety and nuance of the speech cadence of John Stamos, reading someone's lucky 12-digit number off of plastic white balls on television. We learned what men would do if they had $10 million, telling us how they'd buy Corvettes and purchase beachfront condos and bed foxy gold-digging broads and tell their bosses to go screw themselves with tungsten titanium sandwiches, telling us this as they denuded us, grimly, with their foil-flucked fingernails. Luck be a lady, they said, pallid, paunchy, sweating, bald, and we learned to stare at our naked selves, reflected palely in the dark sectors of the television, as John Stamos read the day's twelve lucky numbers to see if we had made anyone a winner. surcharges and a small startup fee and got us a number in the phone cemetery where we could record a brief eulogy on an answering machine and a tiny listing in the real yellow pages first name last name beloved wife and mother years of birth and death 
There were more expensive dollar grave plans with longer epitaph recording lengths, larger real yellow pages font sizes, free long distance in case we wished to call mom's grave out of state. But dad was never one to waste valuable time on cost-benefit analysis. Instead, he immediately circled the brochure's least expensive option, filled out the required personal information on the included mail-in order form, and began brainstorming a eulogy that satisfactorily captured mom's brilliance, beauty, complexity, and warmth, and can be articulated in 10 seconds or less. Five business days later, mom's dial grave was activated. Both my little brother Sammy and I were fascinated by this term, business day, which was sometimes like a real day and sometimes something more mysterious. Our family received, in the mail, a manila envelope containing mom's number, dialer grave's terms and conditions, a phone cemetery plant upgrade application, and written instructions on how to record an audio epitaph, as well as numerous flyers and advertisements from Dialer Grave's sister companies, Zippertown, Rent-A-Mule, American Discount Chaw. The flyers promised us instant savings, professional delivery, mail-in rebates, special value. They offered us toll-free service, hassle-free shipping, unlimited coverage, lifetime guarantees. Mom's phone cemetery number was printed on 3x5 cardstock, which Dad affixed with a magnet to the fridge. Mom's number surrounded by photos of relatives, supermarket receipts, and outstanding phone, water, and gas and electric bills. In the dial grave Terms and Conditions Agreement, fine print indicated that Dialer Grave's synergistic relationships with its parent company subsidiaries allowed Dialer Grave to keep its monthly subscriber fees low to pass the savings onto us. After mom died, her parents had offered to pay for a proper funeral, a casket, hearse, headstone, bereavement luncheon. Dad had vehemently refused. As Sammy and I sat in the kitchen, dining on the bounties of condolence, the sponge cakes, the fruit breads, the entire honey-glazed hams given to us by sympathetic neighbors, teachers, and parents of classmates, their perishables always accompanied by tasteful hallmark cards with carefully worded messages printed on the covers and faux handwritten script, we listened to Dad argue with his in-laws over the phone. Dad ranting about embalming costs, mortuary rental fees, the price gouging of caskets, floral arrangements, cemetery plots, obituary notices, honorariums for officiating clergy. How, even if his in-laws could afford such extravagances, it was the principle of the thing, the funeral industry's inherent profligacy and inefficiency that truly irked him. How no amount of marble, granite, or cast bronze was ever going to bring their daughter, his wife, back. In the end, Dad donated Mom's body to science, all transportation and final disposition expenses covered by the for-profit company Cadaver Co., and we held our own private funeral service in the kitchen. 
dad dialing mom's grave's number and holding the corded phone where its low bandwidth cracklings could register and Sammy's in my ears. Thank you for calling Dial-A-Grave, said a pleasant female's pre-recorded voice, purring out of the phone's earpiece. And now, before we connect you to the final resting place of your loved one, please pause for a brief word from our sponsors. Sammy and I attended Catholic school, Our Lady of the Holy Souls. Our enrollment in a private educational institution had been a big bone of contention between dad and mom. It was one of the few financial fights she had ever won. At Holy Souls, both a church and a school, the church a recently renovated monument to God's majesty and glory, the school a leaking, structurally unsound slapdash of mortar and brick. Sammy and I attended mandatory morning mass once a week, every Friday, Father Damien telling us in his monotonal liturgical drone how the poor were blessed, how the meek would inherit the earth, how it was easier for a camel to pass through the eye of a needle than for a rich man to enter into the kingdom of heaven. My classmates, who spent these sermons slouched in their pews, scribbling in their hymnals, drifting off to sleep, were the sons and daughters of real estate developers, defense attorneys, ophthalmologists, state legislators. One of my classmates' parents had paid for a $100,000 addition to the church rectory. Another had paid for a 20-foot-tall granite statue of Jesus to be erected in the Holy Soul's parking lot, the risen Christ's outstretched arms blessing his neatly diagonally canted flock of Oldsmobiles, BMWs, Mercedes, Lexus. Shortly after Mom died, Dad called a family meeting in the dining room. The dining table was still cluttered with half-full sympathy baskets containing chocolate fudge, premium cheese breads, innumerable varieties of herbal tea. Dad, using the same voice he employed while disclosing credit card information over the phone, explained to Sammy and me that due to the tragic loss of her mother, and more specifically, the loss of her bi-weekly part-time librarian paychecks, we would be restructuring our family's budget to reflect the resultant reduction in annual household income. Meaning, in terms Sammy and I could then understand, we would now be attending public school. Of course, there were other new protocols to follow, other new restrictions imposed. No more baths, only showers, no more paper towels, only wash rags, no more Cheerios, only value-save toroidal toasted oats. But the mid-semester transition from Our Lady of the Holy Souls to Susan B. Anthony Elementary and Thurgood Marshall Middle reflected most dramatically the sudden shift in our family's fortunes. Does this mean we're poor now? said Sammy, sniffling, fighting back tears. No, said our dad. It just means we need to be more efficient utilizers of our resources. Thurgood Marshall, I later learned, during the Civil Rights Unit in American History, was the first African-American to be appointed to the U.S. Supreme Court. Despite the legal inequities of his day, 
He had been instilled since childhood with a respect for the law by his father, a railroad porter, and his teachers, who often made him copy the U.S. Constitution as punishment for improper conduct. Thurgood Marshall Middle School, I learned on my first day of enrollment, was 160,000 square feet of anarchy, mob rule, and chaos surrounded by an eight-foot-tall chain-link fence. The classrooms usurped by apathy, impulsivity, attention deficiency. The restrooms commandeered for conspiracy, racketeering, vice. The cafeteria blitzkrieged by pizza slices, banana peels, individually packaged pudding snacks. The hallways stampeded by unencumbered adolescents. Admittedly, the students at Our Lady of the Holy Souls had not been shining beacons of Christian piety and virtue either. They had smoked blunts packed with dandelions and grass clippings in the playground, had snuck the F-word onto the teacher's master copy of a unit vocabulary test, had mooned the audience during our annual Christmas pageant as third graders dressed as shepherds and angels sang Silent Night. But they had not ballpoint penned synonyms for homosexual on my backpack. They had not jammed my finger into an electric pencil sharpener. They had not stuffed me into lockers, trash cans, receptacles for newspaper, and aluminum cans only. My first week at Thurgood Marshall, I called Mom's grave every day. I used a payphone in a remote corner of the playground, 50 cents for all local calls. Dad didn't know about the payphone, about the quarters I stole daily from his stash of parking meter change. We had unlimited local minutes at home. He never would have approved of such fiscal irresponsibility. But I couldn't wait until school was out to talk to Mom. I couldn't wait until 3.30 to leave for my rambling, barely coherent messages, my tales of oppression and woe. I couldn't wait to hear her voice say, Hi, my darlings. It's me. Just letting you know I'll be home at 6.30. Love you. Bye. The last answering machine message she ever left. Dad's final choice for her 10-second audio epitaph. When the yearning came, when the sharp spinal pain of her absence struck, I had to talk to Mom. Right then, during math, science, social studies, reading, P.E., even if it wasn't really Mom, even if it wasn't really her voice, even if she was now just millions of ones and zeros, the same ones and zeros that, in different combinations and permutations, made up someone else's loved one, with her credit card information, with her responses to the American Discount Chaw Voluntary Phone Survey, question one, how and where did you first hear about our Chaw? Meanwhile, at Susan B. Anthony, Sammy was handling the transition to public education even less gracefully than I was. He was apparently crying for no reason in his classes, throwing tantrums, toppling desks, lessons on multiplication tables, cursive handwriting, and the journey of the Mayflower, reducing him to instruction-halting sobs. He saw the guidance counselor, Ms. Weissmuller, twice a week, 
during specials, sharing his feelings with Ms. Weissmuller's small army of hand puppets, and eating the leftover Halloween candy she kept in a plastic pumpkin on her desk, but his classroom behavior failed to improve. When he came home, and we called Mom together, he cried even during the brief messages from Dallagrave's strategic partners, cried as well-modulated voices cheerfully sold us sanitary pads, renter's insurance, industrial-grade disinfectants. At home, though safe from the scholastic terrors of Susan B. Anthony and Thurgood Marshall, Sammy and I struggled with a different transition. The transition to a missing voice on our answering machine, to an empty chair at the dining table, to one less Christmas stocking hung above the hearth. In the evenings, after Sammy and I had completed our school assignments, we found comfort, as have so many other tragedy-stricken Americans, in broadcast television, in the living room, while Dad did all the chores and odd jobs Mom used to do in a household suddenly quieter than any of us had ever known. The popular shows then were reality shows, Real American Samurai, Gussy Up My Tractor, What's the Most Humiliating Thing You Would Do on Television for $50. My favorite was Love or Avarice, wherein a wealthy woman was pursued by a slew of attractive suitors, all but a handful of whom were federally indicted con artists. Each week, the wealthy woman made the suitors compete in relay races, treasure hunts, hula hoop contests, water balloon tosses, Red Rover, kick the can, and capture the flag, so she could decide which of her admirers was worthy of her love, and the suitors spent their post-competitive hours charming the wealthy woman with parlor tricks, and romantic poetry, and moonlit serenades, and taping solo confessionals in which they described everything they'd buy after marrying into the woman's millions, ski chalets, turboprops, dune buggies, yachts. Sammy and I, camped out on the couch, rooted every Thursday for our favorite suitors, some ex-cons, some not, as they played kickball, jump-roped double-dutch, stood single-file, awaiting the wealthy woman's weekly cuts. And meanwhile, our dad toiled wordlessly in the other rooms of the house, seeking solace in honest work, in dirty laundry, saw-stained dishes, dusty baseboards, malfunctioning drapes. Two weeks later, we received another manila envelope from Dial a Grave. Inside the envelope were glossy brochures for fiber-optic transmitters, geostationary satellites, nuclear power plants, and hydroelectric dams, plus a typewritten letter informing us of the recent corporate takeover of Dallagrave's parent company by a major Chinese energy and telecommunications conglomerate. Dad, by now, had mastered the bread and sewing machines and was spending his evenings baking pumpernickels and rye and performing routine maintenance on his collared shirts and slacks. Sammy's and my favorite suitor had been voted off of Lover Avarice, the wealthy woman unimpressed with his performance and 
tug of war. The glossy brochures featured full-color photos of irrigated farmland, pristine mountain streams, smiling families of four enjoying the yields of nuclear power. The typewritten letter assured us, in this time of transition, of Dialograve's continued commitment to customer satisfaction and commemorative excellence. At Thurgood Marshall, life was not like it was in the brochures. My classmates had set our class pet on fire and caused my teacher to suffer a nervous breakdown, and now we were taught by only the most naive or desperate for work of our school district substitutes, most of whom didn't even last past lunch. To make matters worse, my dad's supply of parking meter change had dwindled dangerously low, so not wanting to risk discovery of my embezzlement, I had been calling mom's dial-a-grave with the school's front office phone, which, though free, had the disadvantage of being located in the school's front office, children crying, parents complaining, teachers screaming, administrators hyperventilating, not the proper environment for a call to the phone cemetery. The front desk assistant, Miss Charlene, could not have been nicer. She dialed mom's number for me, called me sweetie, tenderly passed me the handset. But every time I tried to pour my heart out to mom, I had to wait through five minutes worth of advertisements from Dallagrave's new sister companies, Pandatech, Sinowax, Globosmelt, and Miss Charlene, barraged with incoming calls, had to delicately ask me to relinquish the handset before I even heard mom's voice. Hi, my darlings. It's me, just letting you know I'll be home at 6.30. Love you. Bye. Then, one day, Sammy and I called mom from home right before a very special episode of former child actors perform contract labor instead of the customary pleasant pre-recorded prompt. We got static. I dialed mom's number again, from memory, as always, but the results were the same. White noise, analog hiss, no cheerful females for English, press one. Our dad, furious, called Dialograve's customer service hotline, its number listed at the bottom of the phone cemetery plan upgrade application, and he was put on hold for the entirety of our television program former child actors laying asphalt, installing rebar, resodding lawns. By the gripping finale, when the former child actors waited for the series host, a former swimsuit model and master stonemason, to announce who would be invited back to perform additional labor, Dad had had enough music and pre-recorded claims that his call was valuable, please stay on the line, he angrily hung up the phone and wrote Dialograve's corporate office a sternly worded letter. Meanwhile, Sammy and I watched the former child actors get assigned to construction work, custodial work, temporary clerical projects. The actors who received no assignments were spirited away in the cargo bed of a Ford pickup truck, but before they climbed into the back of the Ford, they hugged the other actors cried.
days passed, then weeks, then months. Mom's dial-a-grave never worked again. Dad never received a response to his letter. Thurgood Marshall received an F grade for its students' performance on state assessment tests and was shut down, converted into a Zippertown outlet. The next year, I attended Amelia Earhart Middle, where I witnessed my first knife fight. Amelia Earhart's school motto was, Let your imagination soar. When it became clear that the dial-a-grave was never coming back into service, Sammy and I pestered Dad to buy Mom a real grave, and he eventually half-relented and bought her a memorial paving brick in our town's frontage road of honor. The paving brick, like Mom's listing in the phone cemetery, said her first name, her last name, beloved wife and mother, her years of birth and death. After school, and on weekends, Sammy and I walked along the frontage road, which lay between a succession of strip malls on the interstate, in search for Mom's brick near the drive through exit of a better-dipped poultry franchise. Or, more accurately, one of us did the actual searching, and the other one kept his eye out for approaching cars. Dad was too thrifty to buy flowers, so Sammy and I picked weeds that grew alongside the frontage road and placed them on Mom's brick during lulls in traffic. We talked to her and sang her favorite song, All the Pretty Little Horses, until rush hour, when the roar from the interstate became too great. Sometimes, usually late at night, I would still dial Mom's number the phone in the kitchen, wait for a voice, any voice, to emerge from the static and tell me what to do. The last time I tried was a year ago. A woman answered. She asked if I was 18 or older, told me to press one, offered to make my wildest dreams 